Welcome, everyone, to 1001 Stories of the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. There are few periods in history that offer as much excitement and drama as does the American migration westward in the 19th century. The American frontier offered freedom and a new life to tens of thousands of people who were willing to give it a chance. Many of them were from east of the Mississippi, and still others were immigrants from other countries. All colors, all backgrounds, rich and poor, it didn't matter. They had one thing in common. They all came for a chance to build a new life. These were their stories, culled from autobiographies, newspaper accounts, historical writers, and diaries, mostly written by or narrated to writers by people who were there and experienced it. I'll be sharing stories that take in the American frontier, which I define basically as everything west of the Mississippi by 1830, as well as the American Southwest, loosely called the Old West. You can expect to get some great history here, as well as hours of entertaining and informative accounts. Send us reviews and share with your friends who enjoy the West and its stories. That's all we ask. And now, this week's story. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, the Great Oklahoma Land Rush of 1893, an eyewitness account. Thought you would enjoy this. At precisely 12 noon on September 16, 1893, a cannon's boom unleashed the largest land rush America ever saw. Carried by all kinds of transportation, horses, wagons, trains, bicycles, or on foot, an estimated 100,000 people raced to claim plots of land in an area of land in northern Oklahoma Territory known as the Cherokee Strip. There had been a number of previous land rushes in the territory, but this was the big one. In 1828, Congress designated the land that would become Oklahoma as Indian Territory. White settlers were required to leave, and a number of tribes from the east and south were forcibly moved into the area from their ancestral lands. Chief among these were the five civilized tribes, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole, who allied themselves with the south during the Civil War. Following the war, the U.S. government looked upon these tribes as defeated enemies. This animosity, combined with increasing pressure to open up the Indian Territory to white settlement, prompted the first land rush in 1885. A second followed in 1889. By the time of the Oklahoma land rush of 1893, America was in the grip of the worst economic depression it had ever experienced. This was one of the factors that swelled the number of expected land seekers that day. Many would be disappointed. There were only 42,000 parcels of land available far too few to satisfy the hopes of all those who raced for land that day. Additionally, many of the boomers, those who had waited for the cannon's boom before rushing into the land claim, found that a number of the choice plots had already been claimed by Sooners, who had snuck onto the land claim area before the race began. The impact of the land rush was immediate, transforming the land almost overnight. The rifles snapped and the line broke with a huge, crackling roar. So wrote Seth Humphrey, who was involved that day in the land race, in his memoirs which follow. Humphrey and his brother had joined the mad rush that day, not to race for land, but just for the fun of it. We join his story in the moments just before the starting guns unleashed a mad dash for land. He writes, At last the eventful morning broke, a day exactly like all the rest, hot and dry, a south wind rising with the sun dead ahead, and a hard proposition for bicyclists. We had stayed overnight in the little hotel of a town within a mile of the border, several of us in one room, 
"'but at least we two of the bicycle corps "'did not have to mix up with the jam of horses about the place. "'And we had another decided advantage "'at not having horses to look after "'in a hot prairie wilderness where there was not a well, "'scarcely a stream not gone to a dry bed, "'and only an occasional water tank "'on the one railroad running south to Texas. "'This water would be of service "'only to the comparative few who could locate nearby.' A quarter to twelve. The line stiffened and became more quiet with the tension of waiting. Out in front a hundred yards and twice as far apart were soldiers, resting easily on their rifles, contemplating the line. I casually wondered how they would manage to dodge the onrush. Perhaps they were wondering that, too. The engine, a few hundred feet away, coughed gently at the starting line, its tender and the tops of its ten cattle cars trailing back into the state of Kansas were alive with men. Inside the cars, the boomers were packed standing, their arms sticking out where horns ought to be. Five minutes. Three minutes. The soldiers now stood with rifles pointing upward, waiting for the first sound of firing to come along their line from the east. A cannon at its eastern end was to give the first signal. This the rifles were to take up and carry on as fast as sound could travel the length of the Cherokee Strip. All set. At one minute before twelve o'clock, my brother and I, Noticing that the soldier out in front was squinting upward along his rifle barrel and intent on the coming signal, slipped out fifty feet in front of the line, along the railroad embankment. It was the best possible place from which to view the start. It has been estimated that there were somewhere around one hundred thousand men in line on the Kansas border. Within the two-mile range of vision that we had from our point of vantage, there were at least five thousand and probably nearer to eight. Viewed from out in front, the waiting line was a breathtaking sight. We had seen it only from within the crowd or from the rear. The back of the line was ragged, incoherent. The front was even, smooth, solid. It looked like the line-up that it was. I thought I had sensed the immensity of the spectacle. But that one moment out in front gave me the unmatched thrill of an impending race with 6,000 starters in sight. First in the line was a solid bank of horses. Some had riders, some were hitched to gigs, buckboards, carts, and wagons, but to the eye there were only the two miles of tossing heads, shiny chest, and restless front legs of horses. While we stood, numb with looking, the rifles snapped and the line broke with a huge crackling roar. That one thundering moment of horseflesh by the mile, quivering in its first leap forward, was a gift of the gods, and its like will never come again. The next instant we were in a crash of vehicles whizzing past us like a calamity. The funniest of all the starters was the engine with its ten carloads of men. From our stand fifty feet directly in front of it, I was contemplating it as the chief absurdity of the race when the rush began. The engine tooted incessantly and labored hard, but of course she couldn't get underway with anything like the quickness of the horses. Of course, everybody on the train was mad with excitement particularly since they were packed in without a chance to vent their emotions in any but some noise-making way. With the first toots of the engine came revolver shots from the crowds all along the tops of the cars, and at least a few from those penned up inside. The fusillade, which kept up all the while the train was pulling out past us, had a most exhilarating effect. My old gun, I suddenly noticed, was barking with the rest of them. A little before midnight, we woke to a distant clatter of hoofs, shouting and shooting. Number, section, township, range, keep off and get off. Then crack, crack went the rifles, after each call from the pretty country we'd been admiring at sundown. After a hearty breakfast, 
"'We pumped up our sorry tires "'and packed up to start south for the town sites. "'Ever since daybreak, "'boomers had been straggling northward, "'bound for Kansas and all points east. "'One young fellow who stopped for a moment "'while we were eating breakfast "'was a fair sample of this crowd. "'He had staked a claim in our nice little valley, "'along with a half a dozen others on the same tract, "'and, of course, as in such cases all over the Strip, "'nobody under heaven could know who had arrived first. But for him the delicate question had been settled by the gay horsemen in the pitch darkness of the night before. By the time they were through with him, he felt assured that he must have arrived about a week late. "'I wouldn't live here next to such neighbors anyway,' he told us with considerable heat. At this safe distance, and in the daylight, his feelings had turned to indignation, but he was still trembling a little. This eyewitness account appears in Humphrey, Seth King, following the Prairie Frontier, 1931. We'll return to an eyewitness account of the Great Oklahoma Land Rush of 1893 right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, back to our story. And now we'll share a newspaper account with you of that same land rush. Cherokee Strip opened at last. Hundreds of thousands of men and women joined in a terrible rush for land. Sooners secure the best claims. Boomers on racehorses and railroad trains find the choicest spots already taken. Wild scenes on the border. When the signal was given at noon, the plains were quickly covered by a multitude. Arkansas City, Kansas, September 16th, 1893. The bars enclosing six million acres of public land in the Cherokee Strip were let down exactly at noon today, and more than a hundred thousand men and women joined in the mad rush for land. Men who had the fastest horse rode like the wind from the border, only to find other men with sorry-looking animals ahead of them. Fast teams carrying anxious home seekers were driven at breakneck speed, only to find men on the land who had gone in afoot. Every precaution had been taken to keep out the boomer element, and yet that same element, profiting by former experiences, had captured the land. The rumble of teams could be heard all night as they moved out to the strip. 
At the railroad stations, the men stood in line at the ticket offices, awaiting the slow movements of ticket sellers, who could not sell more than 2,000 tickets an hour. The great jam, however, was at Orlando, where were gathered 20,000 Perry citizens, all anxious for the time to come when they could start on their 10-mile race. The start was made at noon. For an hour before, the borders of the Strip were black with men, horses, and teams. From the elevation at Orlando, the line could be seen for a distance of eight miles east and ten miles west. In each direction, the line was crowded until it appeared to be only a black ribbon outlined on the gray surface about them. Half a dozen times, someone would shout the hour of noon, and fifty to a hundred horsemen would draw out of the line, only to be driven back by the cavalrymen who were patrolling the strip in front of the impatient throng. When the signal was heard, a puff of smoke was seen at last out on the plains to the north, and soon the dull report of a cannon was heard. A dozen carbines along the line were fired in response to the signal, and the line was broken. Darting out at breakneck speed, the racers soon dotted the plains in every direction. Following them came light vehicles driven with a madness that disregarded every obstruction, the drivers yelling and urging their horses with whips as well as voices. Then followed heavy wagons, enveloped in clouds of dust, the noise made by their wheels resembling long, continuing rolls of thunder. Behind these came anxious footmen carrying blankets, water, and stakes, regardless of the heat and dust. Before them was the unknown. Behind them were all the discomforts of Orlando. The trains were loaded rapidly. There was an attempt at first to examine the registration certificates, but this was soon given up as the rushing thousands pushed those ahead of them, the trainmen giving all their time to collecting the tickets. The first train of twelve cars pulled across the line at noon, crowded as trains never were before. Platforms and roofs of cars were as black with human life as were the interiors. Following this train, with an interval of only two or three minutes, went another and another until the last, consisting of flat and cold cars, all crowded, had pulled across the line, followed by at least three thousand disappointed and panting men who were determined not to be deprived of their rights. The run to Perry was made in three-quarters of an hour. Before the train stopped, men began climbing out of the windows and jumping from the platform. The south line of Cowley County, with Arkansas City as the center, presented a scene almost as animated and exciting as that at Orlando. The hundred-foot strip for a distance of more than twenty miles was filled with struggling, expectant humanity last night. Additions were made to the crowd all night long, and at ten o'clock this morning, East and west of the Chilaco School, there was a long black line. Men would start out occasionally, but threats, not to be disregarded, soon brought them back. When the signal was given away, they all went, and the scenes on the south line were repeated. There was a jam at Chilaco Creek, which, owing to the steep north bank, was passable at only a few points. In many instances, men leaped their horses down the 18-foot embankment, landing in the water, and hastily scrambling out again. Others were so unfortunate as to cripple their horses, and, abandoning them, they started on foot. Just east of the school, a heavy wagon loaded with six men was driven over the bank, which was concealed by the clouds of dust that came up from the burned prairie. As the horses went over, the men jumped, and all escaped unhurt except one, who had his leg broken. The trains for the south last night carried 2,000 persons, ostensibly to Orlando. All the way down, however, the boomers kept dropping off the trains as they moved, and when they stopped at stations. At Ponca, which is in the reservation, but two miles from the line, fully 500 men left the train, 
defying the feeble efforts of the two soldiers who had been placed there to see that no one left the train. These men did not become Sooners until they crossed the line, and though their entrance from the reservation had been forbidden by the Secretary of the Interior, they went out on the public domain from that point today, every one of them carrying a certificate of registration as credentials. Some of these men were town-site speculators, while others were intending farmers. All the towns in Oklahoma and southern Kansas are practically deserted today. Few of the 150,000 boomers upon the border of the promised land at Guthrie, Oklahoma, closed their eyes in sleep last night. With prairie fires raging in front of them, and with mind and body strained by the pent-up excitement of the impending struggle, there was no room for sleep and no inclination to rest. Wagons and boomers kept pulling up from the streams to which they had retired for water and pasturage, and loaded railway trains continued to arrive, and before the break of day, everybody was astir. Thousands of letters were written home during the night, and at morning's dawn couriers were sent to the nearest post office loaded down with missives, for many and many a man, realizing the danger that was impending, felt that perhaps this might be his last race, and sent his loved ones a farewell message or expressed his last wishes should the worst come. There was a careful packing of all loose articles, a looking over of harness and saddle, or oiling of wheels, and a careful grooming of horses. Thirty thousand certificates were issued at the Orlando booth, thirty-three thousand at Hennessy, and twenty thousand at Stillwater. Everybody was registered, but it was necessary for the government to employ fifty clerks at some point instead of the three they had started with. Guthrie is deserted. All the banks and stores are closed, and it's quieter than on Sunday. Every other city near the Strip is in the same condition. All the men and half the women have gone to take part in the race. More than 15,000 persons wanted to get in on the first train from Orlando, which had a capacity for fewer than 2,000. With a wild shout, the crowd rushed forward. The soldiers on the ground were swept from their feet, and for a moment it seemed as if the mob would capture the train, for men and women were around and over the engine and tender, upon and under the platforms, and even upon the roofs of the coaches. The blue-coated guardians soon recovered, however, and with fixed bayonets cleared the train and compelled everybody to show certificates before entering. On every side, men and women fought and struggled to get near the cars. Women had their clothes torn off, and men were knocked down and trampled upon. Scores of persons were injured, yet the struggle kept up until the train was filled, and it was repeated on a smaller scale with each succeeding train. The race of the boomers was such a one as will never be witnessed again, probably, and the results in the record of expected bloodshed are soon to come. A conservative estimate of the number of people who will be within the border of the Cherokee Strip tonight is 300,000. Most of those in the race are making the run for town lots, and the great objective point is the government county seat and land office of Terry, 10 miles north of the Oklahoma line. The town site covers an area of 320 acres, which has been cut into nine lots to the acre, making 2,880 lots to be divided among the 20,000 people who will crowd in there as soon as possible. The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad ran three trains of 10 coaches each south from this point and two trains of 10 coaches each north from Orlando. Home seekers at the last moment awakened to a realization of the necessity for carrying a supply of water with them into the new country, and all sorts of vessels were in demand for carrying it. The stock of canteens was soon exhausted, and tinners were busy soldering tops on ordinary tin wash basins, which were sold readily at one dollar each. A large number of water wagons were rigged up, 
and they will move into the strip as rapidly as possible to supply water to claim makers. They expect to dispose of it at one dollar a bucket tonight. These were the rules for the home seekers. Any person, man or woman, the head of a family or 21 years old, can enter a homestead of 160 acres upon the strip, provided they have not already enjoyed the benefits of the Homestead Act and are either citizens of the United States or have filed their declaratory statements. If you've made a homestead entry previous to March 2, 1889, and failed to perfect title to same up to this time, or have obtained land under the Straight Preemption or Timber Culture Act, you are still eligible to take a homestead in the Strip, provided you do not own 160 acres of land. For any person owning this amount of land in any state or territory is barred out from entering any land in Oklahoma. Ex-soldiers or sailors or their widows or minor children can enter 160 acres by filing a declaratory statement, either in person or through an agent, and have six months in which to make entry and commence settlement. Any person can initiate his homestead either by going upon the land first and filing afterward, or by going to the land office first, but the former way is the safest and best, as the first in point of time holds the land, and when you go to the land office and file upon a piece of land without having been upon it, some other person may have settled upon it before the hour of your filing, and they would consequently get the land. Only a few can get a chance to successfully file before all the land is settled upon on the day of the opening, so the surest and best way is to go upon the land first and make settlement, then go and file. Every settler in the Strip must live upon his land five years before he can obtain a title, and must also pay two fifty per acre for land east of 97.5 degrees west longitude. A dollar fifty per acre for land lying between 97.5 and 98.5 degrees west longitude and a dollar per acre for all land west of ninety-eight and a half degrees, and shall also pay interest upon the amount, so to be paid for said land from the date of entry to the date of final payment, therefore at the rate of four percent per annum. If any of your ancestors participated in the Oklahoma land rush, please do send us an email at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. We'd appreciate hearing from you, and we'll read your stories online. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. New episodes come out every two weeks on Sunday night. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Say big.